Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. We sometimes get trapped as trial lawyers into thinking of before and after as kind of shorthand. And I feel like there's a tendency to not go as deep on what those losses really are. And those are the things that are going to matter to the jury. It's really important to dig for the gold in our clients' lives. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast with your host, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, I am Steve. Yvonne, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. How are you? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I was uh, just thinking, I just checked out uh, the podcast and I noticed that uh, we are really becoming uh, the uh, international podcast because uh, we've got listeners in Canada, Australia, Ireland, England, a couple in Kenya, some in Japan, <laughs> Singapore. I mean, we are all over the world. So I'm excited. Uh, that's very exciting. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, people all over the world learning about uh, great trials in America. And I want to just say welcome to our, all of our listeners from all over the world. <laughs> yes, that's very exciting. Well, um, well, Yvonne, uh, today we have uh, a fantastic trial lawyer and a very good friend of the show uh, on, uh, we have Lloyd Bell. Lloyd is a, uh, is, uh, a partner, is the uh, founding partner of the Bell Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, you can look up Lloyd at belllawfirm.com, learn all about him and, uh, and learn about his law firm. Lloyd, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And I, and I, uh, I should tell our listeners that we were all together down in, uh, in Nolens uh, <laughs> for the Southern Trial Lawyers um, uh, um, Conference and had just a, uh, just a great time. Strictly business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really good time, though. Um, well, Lloyd, let me, tell, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Lloyd has been practicing law for more than 25 years. Uh, he started out uh, in the U.S. Army as a JAG officer, a Judge Advocate General, and I'm sure did all kinds of interesting trials during then. Uh, it, then in 1999, Lloyd started his law firm uh, and has uh, just had tremendous success in a number of areas, but specifically in medical malpractice cases. Uh, he, he has had verdicts of uh, 15 million, uh, 8.2 million. Um, the one we're going to be talking about today is 26 million. Recently had a, a, a verdict of, uh, of about 4 million and just has had uh, some great, great results. Um, Lloyd's firm uh, in 2018 was chosen as the personal injury litigation team of the year by the Fulton County Daily Report, which is a great honor. Uh, Lloyd has been a super lawyer every year since 2005 and in 2018 was one of the top 100. And Lloyd is also a, uh, is, uh, uh, on the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys in Medical Malpractice. Uh, just a, uh, an outstanding resume, Lloyd, and some, uh, some great work by you and your law firm. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate that. Well, um, so the case that we're talking about today, and it's uh, just a, a tragic case, um, is called uh, Williams versus St. Francis <laughs> Hospital. Uh, it's, it, there's some other defendants in there, but I mean, that seems to be the main one. Uh, it was tried in 2017 down in uh, Muskogee County, Georgia, which is Columbus, Georgia, and um, resulted in a $26 million verdict for uh, Sandra Williams, that was uh, Lloyd's client. Uh, she was uh, severely injured uh, from medical malpractice. 
Uh, and, uh, and Lloyd, I'm going to just talk, uh, talk our listeners through, uh, sort of the, the facts of the case and then we'll get, uh, and then, and then we'll get, uh, talking about the interview with you. Then we're, then we're going to start to grill you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so, uh, Lloyd, as I understand it, and if I'm wrong about something, just, uh, feel free to correct me. But as I understand it, your client, Sandra Williams was a patient of a, uh, anterior cervical discectomy infusion back in, uh, October of 2012. And essentially that's a, an operation, uh, where they go in from the front uh, of the neck and, uh, remove, uh, the disc or, uh, they'll decompress the disc space and then essentially fuse, the neck together, the, the vertebrae together in order to give some relief if she was suffering from either pain or numbness or, or things like that. And from, uh, from all accounts, it seems like the uh, ACDF went uh, fine and that there were no problems during the surgery. And then about 36 hours later, at about 1.30 a.m., Miss Williams' uh, husband uh, called um, the on-call physician, which uh, was a doctor named uh, 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 Dr. Westerlin, he was a, a surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and uh, told uh, Dr. Westerlin that, there, that she had problems uh, swallowing, uh, that she was talking out of her head, talking nonsense. And he basically said, give her some popsicles and then if nothing seems to happen, take her to the ER. Uh, at 2.30 a.m. she goes to, or they get to the ER uh, and um, it's noted that she has extensive neck swelling, burning, throat pain, difficulty swallowing. And uh, one of the diagnoses that they looked at was a cervical hematoma, which is essentially swelling at the neck because of a collection of blood. Um, they took an x-ray. The x-ray showed swelling and showed a hematoma and showed that the, uh, their, the trachea um, was being compressed and, uh, and, uh, Anybody who doesn't understand the anatomy, the trachea is essentially your throat that uh, allows you to breathe into your lungs. Uh, and so this was compressing on her, her airway. Um, then it looks like for about three hours, she was in the hospital with not much happening. And the uh, emergency room doctor telephoned the on-call surgeon, Dr. Westerlin, and, um, and told him that, you know, something needed to be done with this patient because she had this, this issue going on. Dr. Westerlin orders that she go to the intensive care unit, uh, but apparently uh, she never she wasn't transferred to the intensive care unit at that point, uh, and the nursing staff didn't transfer her, and the doctor didn't uh, didn't follow up on that. So the doctor actually arrives at the hospital at about eight fifteen a.m. Um, and this is, is something that we're going to get into talking about, Lloyd. And I don't I'm going through sort of a detailed timeline based on the information you provided us. But it, there was some dispute over what the doctor did and didn't do or what the doctor did and didn't review. And uh, part of it was the um, was going through the audit trails. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a really not only uh, just interesting part of the case, but it's something that is. Uh, becoming more and more important in medical malpractice cases. And, and if, if there are any lawyers out there who feel like they want to do medical malpractice cases, then audit trails are extremely important. Um, she doesn't get transferred to the ICU until 8.15 a.m. This is about three hours after the doctor ordered it. Um, and they have a signs of shortness of breath. Uh, no doctor comes to visit her in the ICU. Finally, a nurse from the ICU calls the on-call surgeon at 9.48 a.m. and says, you might want to come up here 
because we have this patient who looks like she's going into respiratory distress. There was a dispute between the nurse and the surgeon about whether or not that was actually said, but at least the nurse said that she told the doctor uh, that Miss uh, Williams was in respiratory distress and doc the doctor disputed that. Um, and the CT scan was never done, even though it had been ordered. Um, at 10 a.m., uh, they order another CT scan. That doesn't happen until 11.27 a.m., so we're now almost 10 hours after the first call. Um, finally, at 11.45 a.m., the CT is reviewed, and it shows a dramatically compressed airway and in danger of collapse. Um, a number of things uh, happen, but the... Um, Nurse calls the doctor to warn, the radiologist calls the nurse at the ICU to warn of this danger. The nurse calls the doctor to warn of the collapse. That, the doctor then orders a pulmonologist to come in, who again, there was a contention over whether or not the pulmonologist reviewed the CT scan uh, or not. Um, the, the thing that I found really interesting here, Lloyd, is that even though we have all this going on with this patient where she's complaining about um, you know, or not complaining, but showing signs of this compressed airway, the doc, at 12.15 p.m. when the pulmonologist comes in, he says she's uh, alert, breathing on her own, cooperative, and has oxygen saturation of 100, which seems uh, crazy when you've got a compressed airway. Uh, um, it, even though he notes that, he uh, makes a decision to intubate. Uh, they are unable to intubate because of the compression of the hematoma into the trachea. Uh, the surgeon tries to do a uh, or, or tries to um, do a surgery to uh, get the hematoma out of the way. They're still unable to get her uh, intubated, and then finally they have an, an anesthesiologist who comes in and is able to get her intubated. At, at the time that he came in, I think you noted that the oxygen saturation dropped mm -hmm. down to about thirty percent, uh, which is extremely low, and then. Um, and then uh, once they get her intubated, she uh, doesn't wake up at that point. And uh, even though she didn't pass away from this, she was uh, severely brain damaged uh, and um, was blind, rendered blind because of this, disabled and dependent on, uh, on caregivers. Uh, how, how was that, Lloyd? Uh, that was a very good summary of the facts. Um, it sounded remarkably similar to my pretrial order. But, uh, <laughs> that, that is pretty much what I was going off of. And I should say, Lloyd, I... I, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we like to read the opening and closing and you weren't able to give that to us. And I'll just tell our listeners the reason why Lloyd was not able to give us copies of the opening and closing is because after he got his $26 million verdict, the hospital uh, paid almost the entire verdict uh, very quickly. So there was no reason to go out and get the opening and closing. So that just shows sort of the effectiveness of, of Lloyd and, 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 and his team and, and how great they did in this trial. Thank you. I appreciate that, Steve. I also have to say, this was, I, I actually thought the fact summary in the pretrial order was very good. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I mean, it's so, it, it walked through everything really well. And, um, and then, you know, I noticed that, that, you know, you were making certain allegations in your pretrial, and I read the defense's pretrial, and they were basically saying that the stuff you were saying uh, wasn't true. And so, uh, so that certainly, uh, I'm, I'm sure, became a, a big issue of contention during the trial. And, and, um, and also blaming the nurses, which I hate, and I hope that we will talk about that. Right. right. <laughs> well, and I thought, I thought your summary was excellent um, in terms of the detail, but really the simplest way to, to look at the case as, as we presented to the jury was um, that the doctor just didn't come in to see her on time. He waited seven hours from the time that she was 
clearly having problems. She had this, this complication from the surgery that, could, that everybody conceded could be a deadly compl- complication because it threatened your airway. And it was on the weekend, which is unfortunately a lot, a lot of the medical malpractice cases we see concern care over the weekend. And, and this doctor, for, for no good reason, didn't come in to see her until this, this hematoma had progressed and gotten worse and worse and was threatening the airway more and more until eventually she was pushed over the side of the cliff and her airway just collapsed. And that's when her oxygen levels dove into the 30% range. That's when she suffered a brain injury. Well, um, one thing that we mentioned, Lloyd, and I think it's an important thing to talk about, and and for anybody who's looking to do medical malpractice cases, is this issue of audit trails. And it seemed that there was a, a, some dispute between uh, your version of what happened and, and what the doctors were saying that they did. And you uh, were referring to both the medical records and the audit trail. Can you explain what the audit trail is and how you use that during trial? Sure. <clears throat> so... An audit trail is a electronic record that gives certain information regarding a patient's care. So uh, as most people listening to this probably realize, uh, doctors and hospitals have moved into an electronic medical record. So all the information, instead of being taken down by hand, is entered into a computer system. And when this information is entered into a computer database, it, as part of the electronic medical record, it creates an audit trail which uh, documents certain events, such as when a doctor accesses a patient's record, what they do once they access it. Are they looking at nurse's notes? Are they reviewing radiology films? How long they stay in the record? Um, Any orders they issue? All of this is documented in what we call the audit trail. And it's like fingerprints on the medical record, and it tells you who's doing what and when and why. So it's a very valuable piece of information. In this case, um, the, the question became, uh, where's Dr. Westerland or where's Waldo, as I called it at right. trial. Right. And why wasn't, you know, where's Waldo? Why isn't the doctor here in the hospital? Now, he claimed that he showed up at the hospital uh, in the, around eight o'clock in the morning. Um, however, nobody remembers seeing him. He certainly didn't come by to see to see Sandy and take care of her. He claims he was treating other patients and relying upon the nurses. Sorry, Yvonne, he was blaming the nurses (laughs) for not calling him and saying, well, you know, they would have called me if there was a problem and I was there at the hospital. We wanted to establish, was he truly at the hospital? So we requested an audit trail of Dr. Westerland at the hospital. And first we were told that the database doesn't collect audit trails on doctors. Well, that was ridiculous, so we pushed harder. And then they turned over an audit trail. And this is what was really interesting. The audit trail had black marks on it where information had been redacted or or cut out. And they sent this to us in an electronic format, a PDF format. But they had not flattened or um, combined the black markings into the document. So we could see what was underneath these black markings. And we could tell that the information beneath the redactions was my client's information. Wow. So they were, they were concealing my client's information. So I contacted the defense and 
asked them what's beneath the black markings, thinking that they would come clean. Well, they didn't come clean. They said, well, there's nothing. It's related to a different patient, not your patient or not your client. And I said, well, can you confirm that none of the information that's been redacted is related to Sandy Williams? And they said, came back and said, none of it relates to Sandy Williams. Well, we filed a motion at that time to strike their answer for being dishonest with us. And um, the judge uh, did not see fit to strike their answer. He did impose lesser sanctions, um, which did not really play into the trial. But um, these were some of the challenges we were up against. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. I just was gonna ask, just so um, the listeners understand and so, and also selfishly, so I, so I understand. So what, they've, <laughs> so what they redacted was information, I guess, why would they do that? What, what, they were redacting like when her record had been accessed or what was the. Well, the, the, audit, the audit trail we had pressed for them to, to disclose was the audit trail for the doctor showing where the doctor was and when the part that they blacked out or redacted showed when the doctor first interacted with Sandy Williams and they didn't want us to, to see that information. So they redacted it and they said, well, here's his audit trail where he did see some other patients close in time to when he saw Sandy, but they didn't apparently want us to understand when he was documented to first see Sandy, which was much later in the day. So I uh, see. It, it's, it's like a, it's like a Sherlock Holmes novel. I mean, you're having right. to follow these clues and then the audit trails that re- reveal the truth that he had not seen Sandy. He could not show that he was in the hospital until hours after he had claimed to be in the hospital. And that became valuable in proving the case. I well, see. And it, Go and ahead, it just seems like they were so, you know, uh, I mean, it, almost, uh, I don't want to say lucky, but I mean, you know, some great work uh, by you and your team, Lloyd, but the, you know, normally when they present information about a doctor and there's other patients there, they just say that this is protected by HIPAA and you just basically have to take them at face value and there's really no way that you can test that at all. And, and because they had uh, uh, not correctly redacted 
redacted this, you were able to see that they were actually covering up information about your own client. Um, but that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, great work. I mean, it, it makes me worry about all of these, you know, we, we do some medical malpractice cases and, and whenever uh, they redact information, I mean, you almost just have to trust that they're doing the correct thing. And, um, and when they're not, I mean, that could be devastating to both your case and your client. So, um, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's, that, that part of the case is, is shocking to me. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be shocking to me, but that, that a, um, that a lawyer would get involved in, in essentially covering up evidence is, um, is pretty damning. Well, it is. And <clears throat> the, the other audit trail that we were able to get were Sandy's audit trails that were specific to her. So all the medical providers that provided care to her and her audit trail, um, reflected when the doctors looked at her, her x-rays, her radiology images and Dr. Westerland, had testified that he looked at her radiology images when he got to the hospital, he claims at eight o'clock in the morning. Well, the audit trail proved conclusively that he never looked at the x-ray that showed this massive hematoma in her neck <clears throat> at any time during the day. In fact, the first time he looked at it, that we could see in the record in the audit trail, was three weeks later, right before Sandy was being transferred up to Atlanta to come to the Shepherd Center. So the audit trail was able to tell the true story of what the doctors were doing or not doing um, and, 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 and a, in a way that was indisputable and helped us pinpoint the timeline, which is very helpful to us. So when you, uh, I assume then that you pointed that out on cross-examination of the doctor that the first time he actually looked at it was three weeks later. Uh, how did the doctor react to that cross-examination? Well, the, well, the, the, the computer must, it must have made a mistake. You know, right. there's an error in the data. I'm not kidding. This, that was a, I, the answer was, I don't know. I'm sure that there must have been a mistake with the software, a mistake with the computer, of course. You know, well, we showed all the other places that were indisputably accurate in the audit trail, but the part that hurt him, apparently a virus had entered into the computer system. Yeah, um, so it, I feel a little silly, but that was, that was pretty close to what the actual testimony was. Wow. Um, I just had a couple uh, quick background questions. How old, your client, uh, Miss Williams, how old was she when, um, when she had the surgery? At the time she had it, I believe she was 56 years old. Um, and this was the second surgery. She had, she had had a, the identical surgery or nearly identical surgery, maybe 10, 15 years before. And it's very common that over time you have to have a so-called revision surgery because your body ages and you have degeneration. But it's a very routine surgery. And it sounds very complicated the way Steve was describing it um, at the introduction. But it's a very routine surgery. I mean, you have the surgery, and typically you're released the next day. Um, and uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a year have the surgery. And this complication is a known complication, um, and it's rare, but it is known. So you have to be alert to it. And um, you know, they they for whatever reason didn't address it in a timely way, which is of course why why we ended up in court. Right, right. And then um, the, the, the defendant physician, that, that um, um, Dr. Westerlin, what was his specialty? Like, was he a hospitalist or what was his? No, he, he's an orthopedic spine surgeon. Okay. And he was the partner of the actual surgeon who's named Dr. Walsh. And 
one of the most impactful parts of the of the trial was uh, when we called Dr. Walsh as our first witness. And Dr. Walsh, of course, testified in support of his partner and said that his partner did the exact right thing and that the way you treat a patient like Sandy who has this, this complication, this hematoma, is you, ser- quote, serially observe them. In other words, you just watch them until they start having breathing problems, and then you consider a surgical intervention. Well, the problem for Dr. Walsh and for Dr. Westerlin is that Dr. Walsh had been retained as an expert witness on behalf of a plaintiff about a year and a half earlier in a case in Alabama. And in the Alabama case, the facts were nearly identical, neck surgery, discharge, hematoma, patient returns to the hospital. But in Alabama, Dr. Walsh had given testimony that was 180 degrees different than the testimony he was given in Sandy's case. And he claimed in Alabama that when a patient shows up to the ER in Sandy's condition, large hematoma, compressing the airway, he said it's like a ticking time bomb and you have to diffuse the bomb, you can't see the clock, and you have to get that person back to surgery immediately before their airway is compromised. Fast forward to Columbus, Georgia, and all of a sudden you serially observe that everything Dr. Westerlin did in terms of his delay was perfectly fine. And that um, testimony really undermined the credibility of the defendant, as you can, as you can appreciate. Right, right, yeah, wow. So yeah, that's one thing I was wondering about, uh, Lloyd, as I was reading this, the timeline <clears throat> is, um, you know, whether or not, I mean, there are certainly uh, big gaps in action here. And, you know, even after they ordered things, certain things didn't happen. But was the crux of your case that when she came in to the ER or by 535 or 815, whenever uh, the surgeon got there, that at that point, they should have been uh, going in and, and surgically removing the hematoma and intubating her at that point? Close. What she, she actually came to the emergency department um, at around 2 o'clock or one thirty in the morning. And she reported that she had not been able to, to swallow her own saliva for over a day or a day and a half. The imaging, the x-ray of her side of her neck showed this large hematoma. At that point, they should have gotten the surgeon in to evaluate her, protect her airway, and get this hematoma out of there. Because it's not the blood itself that's expanding and threatening the airway, but blood is an irritant. So the the blood is causing all the tissues in the neck to swell. So it's a combination of swelling and blood that was the real threat. It's unpredictable how, how fast that advances. But if it advances, and it may not advance, but if it does, it can obviously be, be lethal. So it was a delay in assessing her, a delay in treating her. And then ultimately, when they provided care to her, they provided the wrong care and put her, pushed her over the edge and essentially pushed her into a respiratory failure situation. Okay. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this uh, issue I pointed out um, in the timeline that when the pulmonologist comes to see her, he, he, I mean, basically it sounds like the way he described that she was doing at 12, 15 PM was, you know, pretty well, yet he also makes the decision to intubate her. But how did, how did that all play out and what was going on there with the, how he comes in at 12, 15 and she's breathing on her own oxygen saturations of a hundred and there's a, 
decision to intubate? Well, there, there are two doctors involved. Um, Dr. Westerlin has finally shown up to the ICU where Sandy is. And Sandy is now having progressively more difficulty uh, breathing. She's still able to fully breathe. That's why her oxygen's okay. But she's having more and more problems breathing and she has a heaviness on her chest. Dr. Westerlin calls for help from this young pulmonologist named Dr. Christopher Tidwell, who just happens to be in the hospital seeing his patients. So he's, so Dr. Westerlin calls Dr. Tidwell and says, come evaluate my patient. Dr. Tidwell shows up and as I explained it in trial, he's a, Dr. Westerlin has essentially handed him a box of snakes and, and presented this patient to him who is in very critical condition and an imminent uh, threat of losing her airway. And Dr. Tidwell made the decision to attempt a bedside intubation rather than call in the anesthesiologist who's the real expert in airway management. And Dr. Tidwell gave her sedative and he attempted to intubate her. Well, the sedative we contended collapsed her breathing completely and put her into respiratory failure. And so Dr. Tidwell's trying to get the tube down her throat. At the same time, Dr. Westerlin is now in the room and he cuts her neck open bedside uh, with a scalpel. And he's got his fingers inside of her neck, scooping out globs of hematoma and wiping them on the bed, trying to decompress or get the pressure off of her airway. And it, it was just a mess. And finally, the anesthesiologist is called and arrives. and He's able to get a tube down her, get her, her lungs breathing again with the machine. But by then, her brain has been without oxygen for, we estimated, maybe 20 to 25 minutes. And... It takes her weeks to wake up, and it's she's still recovering, although she's making remarkable progress from where uh, we thought she'd be, but um, but completely avoidable, just to, just the ultimate and bad medical management. Um, so. Yeah. Um, well, and I, and I saw it looks like uh, that, I mean, I, I, from the timeline, I could see when he was trying to go into intubator and after he gives her uh, the sedative, um, that her uh, oxygen saturation just drops uh, really, really low. I mean, you have it noted at 30%. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, as, as we all know, who if you do medical malpractice cases, once you get below 90, uh, you're starting to get into the danger zone. So 30 is, uh, is, is very extremely low. Well, and it's interesting too, Steve, the, the only reason we know that her oxygen went that low <clears throat> is because Dr. Tidwell the pulmonologist documented that in his notes. There is no record of her desaturation or her lack of oxygen in the hospital record. They did not record her her oxygen levels at this period of time, showing that they were plunging. Um, they did not ha- did not have any good excuse for why they didn't record that information. It's a vital sign. Nurses should have recorded it. Um, but Dr. Tidwell documented that. Now, there's other record evidence that she was turning blue during this time, which is the sign of oxygen <clears throat> deprivation. She was becoming what they say they call cyanotic. But um, again, um, the, the, the problems with the record, you know, yeah. lie on people to enter the information inaccurately, and it becomes a real challenge sometimes to get the, the true facts. 
Well, and everybody knows that when you go into the hospital, they, they put the uh, sensor right on the end of your finger and they're constantly monitoring, uh, monitoring your oxygen saturation. So did they say that that monitor wasn't on her? Or? Well, they're <clears throat> but they're, they're doing that real time. Yeah. Um, you can see it on the screen, but unless a nurse goes to the electronic medical record and actually physically enters that information in, the information's lost. So it's right. not um, it's not recorded, even though it's it's being monitored on the monitor. Yeah, it's you know I I don't really know what their excuse would be for that. Other, I mean, sometimes you hear them talk about when it's an emergency situation that they don't feel like they have time to take down the vitals, even though. Uh, you know, I've seen cases where as even when an emergency situation's going on, they'll write it right on their own gown so that they can then come back later and put it in the records. Yeah, um, that's what they're supposed to do here is, I mean, they said the exact, you've, you've done a lot of these cases, you know what I'm talking about. They said the exact same thing. They said, well, we were treating the patient, not the chart, and our priority was to provide patient care. Um, my response to that is, well, you're supposed to go in and record these vitals after the emergency has passed, aren't you? Well, yes, we are. Well, did you do it in this case? No, we didn't. And they did not have any excuse or, or good explanation for why they didn't. Right. Uh, of course, I, I suggested or at least raised the possibility to the jury that um, it was in their interest not to record this information because they knew that it could potentially expose them to liability. But... Um, you know, what the actual truth is, we're never going to know because they didn't record the information. Right. So, uh, go ahead, Yvonne. Well, no, so I was just going to ask for your, when you, so when you get to trial at that point, um, Dr. Westerlin, who we've been talking a lot about, and then Dr. Tidwell, the young pulmonologist, they, you proceed to trial against both of them. Um, That's right. right. And did they, did they blame each other at all? Or did they, were they kind of on the same page? Um, they started off, more on the same page and they ended up on very different pages <laughs> because <clears throat> Dr. Westerlin um, was trying, maybe when he testified on the stand, he testified that when he left Sandy's bedside in the ICU, he went out into the common area to do some other things. And when he left Sandy, she was in good shape. She was breathing well. She was not in any distress. She was looking good. And he essentially blamed Dr. Tidwell for coming in and trying to intubate her and putting her in the situation where her, she lost her airway. So it was a clear criticism of Dr. Tidwell. Well, Dr. Tidwell uh, did not take that criticism well. And his response was, well, you know, if you had come in to treat her, over the past seven hours since you'd known about her, her condition, we wouldn't have got to this point in the first place. So there was, um, there was true conflict between them, and the jury agreed with Dr. Tidwell that he had, <clears throat> he had done um, the right things at the right time and that the real culpability or the real blame lay on Dr. Westerland, who had known for hours and hours of her situation and just right. was not to come in. right. And, you know, following up on what Yvonne was saying, because I, you know, was looking at the verdict form and I see that, you know, you've, you've got Dr. Tidwell on the verdict form, you've got St. Francis Hospital on there. And in addition to Dr. Westerland, who was an employee of St. Francis, you also have uh, two uh, who I think are nurses uh, on here, which the jury found didn't, didn't find any fault on their part. Um, 
and I assume that that all of the employees of St. Francis were being def- defended by the same uh, lawyers, but it sounds like from the uh, facts that that the nurses and the do- and Dr. Westerlin were disputing each other about what happened and what was told to him. Is that the way it played out? Sort of. The 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 doctor and the nurses were generally in alignment. Um, in their defense. They were defended by the same lawyer, and they were not pointing fingers at each other. Um, And the the, the criticism against the nurse uh, or the nursing staff was was very limited in scope, but it was a real criticism, obviously. Um, But on balance, you you know how the juries are told to evaluate liability or fault or blame among all the parties. they felt that Dr. Westland was the doctor. He knew early on what the problem was, um, and it was just inexcusable that he didn't come in to see her. Um, so they, they, they did not blame the nurses. The jury didn't blame the nurses. And they found that Dr. Tidwell had, um, uh, had followed the standard of care. Well, and, and I'm guessing, you know, part of it from a causation standpoint, I mean, Dr. Tidwell comes in at 12, 15 p.m. Sounds like the first time he came in. So we're talking, you know, 11 hours after, uh, you know, the, the, you know, she was, you know, Dr. Westerlin learned about what was going on with her. Um, so, you know, from the standpoint of who could have done what at what time, I mean, Dr. Westerlin was certainly there a lot earlier in the situation. I, I think that played into it in a big part. And, um, you know, and juries, juries are not blind to the human drama that's unfolding. And, uh, and they're trying to evaluate, I believe, they're trying to evaluate who has real moral culpability. Um, and beyond just the facts, beyond the expert, <clears throat> expert A testifying against expert B, they look at, you know, who's trying to help the patient. Right. And there's no question that Dr. Tidwell got there. Uh, he's, a, he's a younger doctor, but he's experienced. He knows what he's doing. Um, and he was genuinely engaged with Sandy at a moment's notice, and he was trying to help her in the way that he thought best. And I, th- I, felt, I felt, that, felt like that went a long way with the jury in creating connection between the jury and Dr. Tidwell. He, he also had a very capable defense lawyer who brought that story out, that Dr. Tidwell showed up <laughs> Quickly, right. yeah. So this theme of showing up became very powerful in the trial. You got to show up, got to show up and do your job. And Dr. Westerlin, the jury concluded, and it was clear he had not done that. Well, and and, and speaking of what what appeared to you to um, resonate with the jury, were you able to speak with them after the verdict? Well, we did more than that. <laughs> um, when the when the when the verdict was was entered, and the the judge, um, the judge announced that the, told the jury that they were allowed to uh, to speak with us, um, and we had a phase after the verdict where the jury was asked to decide the issue of attorneys' fees. I can talk about that in a minute because it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's how we got the case resolved. But um, but when the whole case was over that day, the final day of trial, uh, the jurors approached me first, and they said, "Would it be okay if we spoke?" to Sandy. And of course that was fine. So I said, sure. So they walked over and they asked Sandy if they could pray with her. And she said, that would be, yes, that'd be wonderful. So the jury formed a circle around Sandy, 
held hands, and they all bowed their heads and prayed with sin. Wow. <clears throat> that is powerful. One of those moments that you just never, you never forget, that, that, that connection, that love, that respect, and um, just, a, wow. that's just, a, just a wonderful moment. So, so yes, yeah, so we after we prayed with Sandy, we <laughs> talked to the jurors um, uh, in groups, but also in the, in the following days, I talked to a number of the jurors and um, got a lot of interesting feedback. Um, the part of, one thing that stands out in my mind very clearly is a younger juror who, frankly, we had some concerns with because he had a very strong poker face. Uh, but the younger juror said that... Um, that the case was essentially over after the first witness um, because that was we, doc, Dr. Walsh. That was Dr. Walsh. Yeah. They, they found that he was so incredible um, throughout his testimony, talking out both sides of his mouth. Um, at one point, this is almost a direct quote. I asked Dr. Walsh, I said, well, Dr. Walsh, where did you get that information? He was, is relating to, testimony he had given in Alabama, which he actually testified about Sandy's case, Sandy's situation. I said, well, and he, made, he had made some stuff up. And I said, well, doctor, where'd you get that? This is a response. I don't know. I said, well, are you just making this up? And he goes, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and when you get a witness, especially a key witness, a doctor testifying that maybe he's making things up. Right. Yeah. It's not going well. Right. But, the, but this juror said this was his view was that the case, at least on liability, was, was basically over after the first witness. And then the other witnesses reinforced that. But, um, but yeah, so that was one thing that stood out from the jury. And some other things that stood out were um, um, this discussion of damages. Uh, we had asked the jury to actually return a verdict closer to 35 to 40 million dollars. And there was a strong discussion that the verdict should have been over 30, but there was one or two jurors who felt like the verdict should have been between 10 and 15. And, um, and, there was a, and, and that was what was taking the jury so long. Of course, we're chewing our fingernails down to the nub right. as the hour after hour go by. But, um, but ultimately, they came, obviously came back with a very strong verdict that's going to take care of Sandy for the rest of her life. Right, right. Um, quickly, just as kind of a, you know, sort of a practice pointer for our lawyer listeners. Obviously, Dr. Walsh was a key witness for you, especially being able to bring out this testimony that he had given in Alabama. How did you learn about that testimony? How did you find it? Well, I, I had, of course, taken Dr. Walsh's deposition and asked him if he had ever testified in previous cases. And he mentioned testifying in Alabama. Um, he made it sound like it involved different issues, but we asked him, or I asked him, uh, who was the attorney you were working for in Alabama, and he gave me his name. So later, after the deposition, I contacted the attorney in Alabama and asked him to send whatever he could, and he was able to send over a copy of a deposition um, and some deposition exhibits. So we found the name of the, uh, of the patient in Alabama that Dr. Walsh was actually working for as an expert. And, we, and, and in the Alabama case, the patient actually died from, the, from lack of oxygen was the allegation. And so we contacted the family in Alabama and told them who we were, 
told them what we were doing, and we asked them if they would sign a HIPAA, uh, a medical authorization, um, so we could get the Alabama patient's records. And they did. They're very friendly and, you know, we're empathetic with our client because of what they had experienced in their family. Of so course. We got, so we got the HIPAA. Then we ordered off, ordered for the medical records, including the radiology films. So we were able to get the, the, the lateral or the side x-ray of the Alabama uh, patient and compare it to the x-ray of Sandy's and their identical orientation. Well, which, wow. which side hematoma do you think was bigger? Um, right. Sandy's was bigger than Alabama. And in Alabama, Dr. Walsh had testified that it was the largest hematoma he had ever seen in his career. He said it was massive. It was enormous. These were his words. <clears throat> so when we get back to our trial, he, he, I put up this massive, enormous Alabama hematoma, and then I put up Sandy's, and they're both on two big boards. And I said, well, doctor, I go, which one is, uh, is bigger? Well, I think they're comparable. <laughs> right, right. Said, okay, well, let's go with comparable. And because they're comparable, just like in Alabama, Sandy's hematoma is massive. Sandy's hematoma is, I guess, the second largest you've ever seen. <laughs> and his credibility was just going down like a, you know, like a, in flames. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Right, right. Wow. And I just think that's an important point to bring out because a lot of lawyers know, and for our non-lawyer listeners, when you've got a testifying expert in a case, a medical expert in the case, you know, then you get their CV, you usually get a testimony list if you have that, have it, and you talk to them about um, other cases they've testified in and you kind of do your work on the opposing side's expert. But in this case, Dr. Walsh was a, was a fact witness, um, but you still did you know, it was because you did that work behind the scenes of, you know, well, had he testified as an expert that you were able to bring out this, you know, a, a point that one of your jurors thought basically decided the case from the beginning. Right. And, and um, that's, that's a good point of I mean, the, what I find is the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you put those hours in and, and go to the, you know, go to the effort of running these things down. 99% of the time they don't, 
they don't, they don't help you. But then that 1%, you know, you find the, the gold nugget. You find that piece of the case that, that can turn the whole case. And there's more gold out there than, uh, I believe, than you can almost imagine. But it just takes that legwork, you know, to reach out to the family in this case, to, to follow up with the lawyer, uh, which was pretty tough because, you know, it was, it was his former expert. So they, he was cooperative but not overly eager to help. Right. Um, but that's the, you're right. It just takes, you just got to push, push, push. And every now and then you, you turn over, you know, turn up gold. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering, Lloyd, the, you know, you had already deposed uh, Dr. Walsh. And so they, the defense, I'm sure, probably thought they had a pretty good understanding of what his testimony was going to be. When you pulled out this record from the uh, other case, was this uh, uh, a surprise to them and to Dr. Walsh? I believe it was. Right. <laughs> it was. Um, because he was not prepared for it. And uh, the defense objected, of course, and they said I should have produced this to him in discovery. But of course, in Georgia, this is impeachment evidence. Yeah. And you don't have to disclose that, uh, except in limited circumstances. Um, and before I, I cross-examined Dr. Walsh, I had firmly established what his view was in terms of how to treat this patient. Serially observer, wait until she's got breathing problems. And that, that drew the contrast very starkly when I could show him the complete mirror image of his testimony where he said, you don't wait until they have breathing problems because then it's going to be too late. And, you, and this is like a ticking time bomb that, and you can't see the clock. So right. that dichotomy was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful. And, and I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, and I, I don't want to get into, you know, anything that's confidential, but did, they, did the defense in this case make any serious attempts to resolve this case uh, after evidence like that came out? No, there's nothing confidential about it. Um, they, they did not offer any, any real uh, settlement for what we thought the case was worth. The first day they offered uh, $5 million, which, of course, sounds like a tremendous amount of money, but her losses were so profound. And one yeah. of the uh, major losses in her case, of course, uh, she had lost her vision, so she was now blind. Um, she had a little bit of color that she could see out of the side of her eye, but essentially blind. Um, she could no longer walk independently, so she was confined to a wheelchair. But one of the biggest, <clears throat> probably maybe the biggest loss, was her ability to sing. And Sandy, her entire life had been a very active member of her church choir. In fact, she led a, uh, a smaller singing group um, of uh, three other ladies that would go around to nursing homes and sing to cheer up the residents and to um, spread the gospel. Uh, she's very committed to her faith. And uh, we were able to show in trial from evidence from video we had gotten, um, we were able to show Sandy her ability to sing before the incident and afterwards and um, specifically before we had this video uh, that was taken at her church and Sandy um, was uh, singing away in the manger as a solo, actually a duet with one of her close dear friends. And uh, imagine this uh, petite uh, lady with a voice like Reba McIntyre, just strong wow. and resonant and beautiful voice uh, and, and a smile on her face as she sang with her friend. 
And then the next uh, uh, video we were able to show was when Sandy returned to her church about two years after uh, her injury, and she'd been through these months and months of recovery. And Sandy's back at her church now in the church choir, and a friend is recording this. And Sandy gets, the whole choir gets up to sing, and they, uh, they, they're holding, literally holding Sandy underneath her arms to support her. And Sandy is clutching the microphone in her hand. And the music dies down for her to start her solo, and she can barely get her voice out as she's, um, as she's being held up by her friends. And you see the support in the choir around her and tears going down her friend's cheeks. And Sandy, just with courage in her face and her eyes wide open, of course she can't see, and singing with a beautiful voice, very different voice, but um, it, was, it was a beautiful moment. And the jury um, could see this loss, um, but still see Sandy trying and yeah. being where she, with all these people supporting her. It was a very powerful moment in the trial. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's an incredible moment that uh, um, really just brings home how much this uh, affected, affected her in, you know, every part of her life, not just uh, the sort of things you can put down on paper. Well, and, and we, we sometimes get trapped as trial lawyers into thinking of before and after as kind of shorthand. Well, before... You know, you couldn't, you know, she liked to garden after she can't garden, before she could do this, after she can't do that. And I feel like there's a tendency to, to not go as deep on what those losses really are. And those are the things that are going to matter to the jury because they imagine losing the things in their lives that are so valuable. So it's really important. Um, I guess maybe I'm talking to the younger lawyers who might be listening to this. It's really important to dig for the gold in our clients' lives. Um, this famous trial consultant, you know, Steve and Vaughn named Josh Carton uh-huh. talks about our job as trial lawyers is to pan for the gold in our clients' lives. <laughs> I always thought that was a beautiful sort of expression, but it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in really getting things like, uh, like home uh, videos of, uh, of your client and things where they've been out with their family. I mean, it, that, that can just be so powerful. Um, uh, no question about it. No question about it. So, you know, I, I, we, there's a couple more things I want to make sure that we, that we hit with you. I, I've seen you speak about this case before, Lloyd, and you had some very interesting demonstrative exhibits. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And, and just to remind everybody what a demonstrative is, is it's not an exhibit that goes back with the jury, but is a, uh, an exhibit that demonstrates a point. And, uh, and it can be a model, it can be a, a video, it can be a number of different things. And, uh, and Lloyd has, has used some great demonstratives in his career. And, I, and, and one of them I saw in this was a very, uh, very simple, but yet very effective demonstrative. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit, Lloyd? Sure, I'd be happy to. And um, this is an area of, of trial practice I feel really passionate about because a good demonstrative exhibit can just make the case. And uh, the, I think the demonstrative you're talking about in this case was I used a, a red water balloon to illustrate the hematoma. Yeah. Um, and it was, an, I, call, I call them anchor demonstratives, one, ones that are always within arm's reach that you can quickly grab and use. And the way uh, we, I used this, this water balloon, uh, it's about the size of your fist, um, 
is I would hold up to my neck to show physically the part of the body where this hematoma was. Then I could also put it up on the radiology film, the, the, the blow up of the x-ray. So you could see, you could translate into three dimensions what's on the x-ray. And, and it was just very effective to be able to put it up there so the jury can visually see what this thing is. And of course, it, uh, you know, part, of our, part of what we're trying to accomplish is to touch on all the different senses we can of the jury uh, to, make, to bring to life the story of the case, to make it memorable, and to, and to clarify. So if you're using words like hematoma um, or even blood clot, you might have a different visual uh, of what that means. Uh, but when you show them, this, this is the hematoma, or this is a demonstrative of the hematoma, they get a visual anchor in their head and they see this big ugly thing that you really do not want in your throat. There's not a whole lot of room in there. You don't want this thing squeezing on your windpipe. Um, in a recent, recent trial we had about, a, about three weeks ago, not to get off topic too much, but it's, uh, talking about demonstratives, um, the issue was the doctor had put what's called a femoral catheter in the wrong blood vessel. He put it in the femoral artery instead of the femoral vein. They're, now they're real close to each other, but these are big vessels, and you really don't want to stick this in the wrong blood vessel because you can kill the patient by putting medicine in the wrong place, which is what happened. It didn't kill my client, but it caused her to have her leg amputated. So we made a model of the, these two vessels, just literally a blue PVC pipe next to a red PVC pipe. And we drew arrows on them showing which way the blood flowed. And then we got a catheter and we used that model to just to put it right up in front of the jury and show they stuck it here and they should, when they should have stuck it here. Mm -hmm. And we were able to, to use that anchor demonstrative throughout the trial with our boards on cross-examination. Um, now, the femoral vessels are in your groin area. So one of, my, uh, one of the lawyers in the courtroom uh, told me on a break that I needed to quit pointing to my groin every time I'm talking about the femoral vein. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that was getting a little much, but um, it made the point. And, uh, but yeah, I, know, I, think, I think these demonstratives, in me particularly in medical cases, which are, just by their nature, they tend to be more complicated on the medicine. Um, you've got very highly motivated defendants, doctors, professionals, intelligent people get heavy on the experts. Um, it's so important if you can't, you have to simplify the medicine. You know, Steve, you have yeah. to simplify the medicine. And the and a good uh, demonstrative, nothing necessarily professionally made, but just a, it could be a water balloon, it could be a tube, it could be. Um, it could be a, a two by four with a screw in it. So you can screw a screw in and show what, ha what happens during an orthopedic surgery, for example. Um, I, I think those carry so much power in the courtroom and it, make, it just makes it more interesting to the jury. It makes it fun, it makes it engaging and it helps uh, advance the story. Yeah, I mean, anytime you've got something in the courtroom that you can uh, grab, pick up, and show your point, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. Not only uh, does it uh, you know help in in you know direct examination, cross examination, but just to have something there where you can show it to the uh, jury. I think what I saw when you had that um, 
that had that red balloon. You also, if I remember right, had a paper towel tube that represented the trachea and had had that inside of another tube and kind of pressed the balloon down in there so that the jury could see, you know, when you've got this limited space, how the hematoma basically presses in on your airway and uh, it makes it so uh, you can't breathe. And I thought it was just incredibly effective. Well, we used that in opening. <clears throat> I remember, I know what you're talking about. We used that in opening and just the, the cardboard tube from a paper towel, uh, a roll of paper towels. And, um, and as I was telling what happened and how this hematoma, this water balloon hematoma was pressing us to trachea, the visual effect and the, and the, the noise was my hand crushing the, the paper towel, crushing and sort of twisting it, which is what happened to Sandy's trachea. And then you take your hand away, and the, of course it's cardboard, so it stays deformed. And the jury is not just hearing me say it, they're not looking at a picture or an x-ray, they're seeing this twisted tube, they're seeing the balloon, and it just brings the story to life in a, in a, in a memorable way. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, when you, when it comes to when you're presenting damages and, um, and you're presenting, you know, not only, you know, how much this has affected her life the way you did, but when you, you come from a standpoint of pain and suffering and you talk about this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, 12 hour period where her, you know, her, you know, trachea is being squeezed, you know, more and more. I mean, just imagine, uh, what that is for, for someone to go through, uh, you know, it's just, uh, uh, very, very powerful with the jury, obviously. And well, one, go, go, ahead. go ahead, Lloyd. Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and it's easy for the jury to understand. Um, if, if a medical malpractice case becomes a, a contest of experts who are debating the finer points of medicine, you're just going to lose as a plaintiff's lawyer because the jury is yeah. not going to have the motivation to take strong, bold action because it's just too confusing. But if you can align your medical malpractice case, uh, I like to teach it this way, with one of the seven deadly sins, one or more, um, so that the jury understands the moral failing, the moral culpability, then it, it causes them to want to have a response uh, against that, that, uh, that immorality. So the seven deadly sins you think of in medical cases, you think of sloth, just, which is just laziness. Right. In this case, our, our expert didn't, not our expert, but our defendant um, just didn't get out of bed and come in to see his patient on the weekend. It's a Saturday night. Who wants to get out of bed on a Saturday night? Um, so there's that element of it. There's, you know, other uh, sins, you know, greed, gluttony. Um, but the, the bigger point I, I want to make is just that it, ha it has to be a morality play. There has to be a moral component, a moral failing uh, to, to motivate a jury to return a strong verdict because if it's just a simple mistake, even if it's an egregious mistake, um, people tend to forgive those uh, if there's otherwise good faith involved. Yeah, I really like that. Would t tell us. So in this case was, was sloth the one that you went with and then how do you, how do you talk to the jury about that? I mean, how do you bring in sort of the seven deadly sins? Well, I don't, I don't bring it in as directly as that, but I right. bring in, but, I, but I'm aligning my themes with, with, one or more of the seven deadly sins. Um, greed oftentimes plays a role in medical cases um, you know, where the choices are between patient safety and, uh, and budget. A lot of times patient safety can lose out, those types of things. 
Um, but I speak in, in, in terms of, of morality with the jury and right versus wrong um, and, and try to put it in, in terms and use frames of reference that the jury can relate to. So we're not just talking medicine. We might talk about uh, uh, an airplane crash. Um, well, what, what happens if, if, a, if uh, the mechanic doesn't come in to address a problem on an aircraft um, or, or a train or whatever example you think will, will connect with the jury? So it's getting sort of back to the beginning of jury selection. One of the things we're doing in jury selection beyond I'd trying to identify the biases and trying to identify you know, the folks who would make up the optimal jury is we're collecting personal stories and experiences that we can adapt into our case story um, and into our, the, the, morale, the moral components of our story as well. So that they, the jury has a very clear sense that I'm speaking to them about one of their neighbors, which is my client, and that we're speaking a common language um, of, the, of, of their language and my client's language and my language. So we're all speaking the same language, which hopefully resonates and animates a good verdict. Yeah, so, um, well, Lloyd, you mentioned it earlier, and this may be a practice pointer specifically for Georgia lawyers, but I wanna talk about it, which is, um, you know, under, uh, uh, OCGA 91168 and and some other statutes that we have, you can move for your attorney's fees if you uh, um, prevail in the case, and uh, and that's what actually what you did in this trial, uh, and then and that caused the defense uh, in this case to instead of go through a further part of the trial to resolve the case with you, can you talk about your use of um, uh, of attorney's fees and costs and things like that and and you know, what, what happens at the end of trial? Well, in, in Georgia cases, um, the prevailing party, whether it's the plaintiff or the defense, can make a motion at the time the verdict is returned. And, and you can make a motion for damages to include attorney's fees if you can show that the others at the defense has um, been, has acted in bad faith and has asserted frivolous positions or frivolous defenses or other positions, and it becomes a, and it's a jury question. So the jury that's just returned a substantial verdict is now the jury that's going to determine if the defendant has acted in bad faith in presenting their defenses or, the, or their other positions. Um, and it can be a very effective motivator for the defense to go ahead and resolve the case for the verdict and avoid the potential of having to pay additional 30, 40% maybe, um, uh, and attorney's fees and other damages. Um, statute's very interesting. Uh, it, it refers to damages, which may include attorney's fees. It's not exactly clear about the other types of damages that might be recoverable, but right. generally in terms of, of, um, of fees and expenses would be your obvious, obvious damages. So in this case, we were able, the verdict came back, um, Judge is about to release the jury. We asked the judge to keep the jury that we've got a motion to make. Uh, we made our motion. <clears throat> judge get, uh, let us break for lunch. And then after, and then over lunch, I talked with defense counsel and said, look, we'll, we'll drop the motion if your folks agree to pay the entire verdict within 30 days. And they agreed to do so. 
And that's, that's how we resolved the case. And it was a, it was a beautiful thing to be able to tell your client, uh, you know, at the end of the trial to be able to, you know, sit down beside her and say, Sandy, it's over. They're going to pay you what the jury says you're, you're entitled to. And we're not going to go through all the post judgment nonsense and appeals and all that kind of stuff. It's over. And, uh, that's only happened to me a few times in my career. Right, so, right. Right, and that's a, that's a good point to bring up. Some of our um, listeners know this, but some don't, that you know, even after you get a verdict, if there's an appeal, um, in the meantime, you know, a bond might be posted to kind of secure the, the assets to satisfy the judgment, but it could be years, actual years, before your client sees any money, even if you won at trial. Um, and I think having to have that conversation with a client who's already been through the very stressful, emotionally exhausting process of trial to say, guess what? We won, but yeah. it's still going to be a couple years. It's a very hard conversation to have. And so how, you know, how fortunate that Miss Williams didn't have to go through that after everything else she's been through. Well, and, and, and you, you touch on a really good point, Yvonne, about how an appeal can drag on. And um, this isn't an original statement, but it, it resonates, is that when you're trying a case, you've got, your, you've got three audiences. You've got your jury as one audience, you've got the judge as one audience, and you have the Court of Appeals judges as another audience. And it's really easy to get caught up with the jury and, and think, or even the judge, and think that that's your only audience. Um, but what I've learned is it's essential to have somebody with you in trial whose job it is, is to keep track of the law, the record, um, and make sure to protect the record so that you'll, if you get a good verdict, you can hold on to it on appeal. And in, in, in Sandy Williams case, I was fortunate to have Darren Somerville, who was an appellate specialist, great person to have in a foxhole in trial, very, 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 uh, high-level thinker and a great researcher. So he was, he was an essential part of the team, making sure that our, uh, our record was clean. And then we had Larry Schlachter, who's a neurosurgeon, who's also a, a lawyer. And Larry was also part of our team. And he was essential in making sure that I was communicating the medicine correctly and making sure that nothing was being lost as we explored the, in the, nooks and crannies of the medical records. So he was, he was a very valuable part of the team as well. You really can't try a medical malpractice case uh, effectively by yourself. You've got to assemble a powerful team to be successful. Yeah. I mean, and there's always so many things coming at you from the defense and, you know, we see it in the medical malpractice cases also in our product liability trials where the, you know, in, in product liability cases, it's, uh, every night, you know, you're going to come, they're going to come up with some new motion that you're going to have to deal with in the morning. And, uh, which can be very distracting if, uh, if you don't have a good team put together to handle it. So having those, uh, effective team members is, um, uh, is essential. I agree. There's another piece of, um, of this trial, Steve, that, um, I think was, it should, should, you know, I should bring out a little bit because, um, um, I, I had never tried a case in Columbus, Georgia before. Um, I was stationed down there at Fort Benning when I was in the Army as a young JAG officer. Um, so I knew where all the good barbecue restaurants were. But uh, <laughs> I never tried a case down there. And, um, and when I typically try cases, uh, I use a lot of technology. 
I bring my own uh, uh, flat screen TV and uh, iPads and equipment to project uh, images, evidence, um, a lot of demonstratives I, I do electronically. And I was had some concern about how that would play in a, uh, a smaller community like Columbus that doesn't, <clears throat> you know, that the courtroom's not equipped for that. It's not something that's used as much. And um, the technology worked really well um, in helping tell the story to the jury. And one of the things they told us afterwards was how useful it was to see the electronic timelines, the pictures, just simple demonstratives, um, to, in, in including um, pictures of witnesses with the testimony that, that they offered in trial, to see that at the end of trial, to kind of help them organize all this information. Because this was a two-week, a little over two-week trial. That's a lot to ask of anybody to try to keep track of, of all the players and all the information of that period of time. So I'm a believer in use of trial technology, as you know. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and it used to be early on in my career, people would talk a lot about, well, does it look like you're going to be, you know, um, too slick or too sophisticated for a small town jury? Um, you know, and maybe they won't like that, but what I found in my practice and I know you found in yours too, is, you know, first of all, most juries, uh, have never seen an actual trial happen. So they don't really know, what's normal or what's not normal. Uh, and I, and they watch a lot of TV and so they'll see trials on TV. And so that, you know, I think there is a certain level of expectation that you do have these things that can, uh, you know, uh, make your points much simpler, make, make them much more effective and, um, and, you know, just keep the jury engaged. So uh, I'm a big believer in technology. The one thing I'll say, uh, Lloyd, that I've always admired about you is that you're able to do the technology yourself because you really have a good understanding of it where, you know, we, we and I'll, I'll give a little plug to um, our, one of our sponsors, Legal Technology Services. We use companies like that who help us put that together because, you know, me and my partners are just, we're, we're not the best people when it comes to technology. So, uh, but I've watched you do it and, and the way you use it is, uh, is really well and that you're able to do it yourself is uh, uh, amazing to me. It's just another layer of, uh, of, uh, you know, in my mind, something that could go wrong, but you, but you handle it very well. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I, I think there's really a role uh, for both. I think there's a role for the legal technology companies to get the initial setup in place with, because, and one of the things I'm seeing more and more is that defense lawyers are making motions to require you to place monitors on their bench. And there's, there's more, um, logistics than what I've done in the past where I've just had my TV, my iPad and my own internal system. Now I'm using technology companies uh, like I did this last trial to set up the amps that are necessary, the monitors, <clears throat> make sure all the infrastructure's in place because that takes one more thing off my plate. Now what I'll, I'll do in trial that maybe uh, a lot of folks aren't, uh, haven't done or gotten comfortable with is, is driving the, the exhibit um, presentation myself off, off of iPad and I'm comfortable with it. I've been working on it a long time and I find it so much more effective if you can take out the, the middleman who's, uh, you know, you're having to interact with to put stuff up. If you can put it up on the screen yourself, 
highlight, call out those types of things. Um, it, it, I think it impre- it's impressive to the jury. It, it moves the case along a little bit faster. And, uh, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. There's a role for fun in trials. It's not, uh, it doesn't have, have to always be dead, deadly serious. No, I, I'm a, we're big believers that should try and uh, not only, you know, I mean, these are serious cases, but they they can be long, they can be exhausting. Uh, so you have to be able to have some fun and do things that uh, that make it entertaining for everybody. So uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I, I did have uh, one other question for you, Lloyd, and, and, and then we're going to let you go because we've taken up a lot of your time. I, I noticed that when the case was filed, uh, it, it included both uh, claims on behalf of Miss Williams and her husband. Uh, as a loss consortium claim, but it, but at the time you went to verdict, it looks like it was just a claim of Miss Williams. And I was just wondering, it, what it, was there a strategy issue there? Was there, uh, you know, I mean, I hate to get into the personal life of Miss Williams, but was there some dissension in the marriage? What was the reason for removing that claim? No, it was it was it was none of those things at all. Um, uh, her love of her life is Philip Williams, and Philip developed cancer during the, during the trial or during the course of the litigation. And, uh, he, he was deposed. Um, but unfortunately about a year before trial, he passed away from cancer. Oh, wow. and, yeah. and one of the, uh, one of the more poignant and memorable parts of the trial was the discussion about how Sandy had moved up to Atlanta with her, with one of her dear girlfriends to help her while Philip was at Emory uh, during the last stages of his cancer. And she would sit beside him in her wheelchair and hold his hand while he was in bed. And they would, uh, she would talk to him and they would laugh together. And we got a lot of this on videotape. We were able to show the jury. And the point being that because of Sandy's injuries, she was not able, as she put it, to be the wife that she needed to be for him during the last stages of his life. So this was a tremendous loss to her that she was not able to provide, in her mind, the support that she wanted to. Philip, of course, um, made Sandy promise that she would not give up on this trial. And he, he wanted her to pursue this and hold these doctors accountable for what they had done to his wife. Um, now, one of the funnier parts of the trial was when we played Philip's testimony, his deposition testimony, and um, um, and Philip was was talking about Sandy, and it was talking about her after her injury, and said how Sandy would just speak her mind about anything, and Philip said, and he goes, you know, she, there's just no filter. She'll tell me if I'm too fat. She'll tell me if I'm too bald. <laughs> and uh, and he's that smile on his face and just love in his eyes. You can just see they adored each other. Um, but um, of course, that was why we ended the consortium component. And um, but it was a uh, it was very special to share that with the jury and for the jury to to see how much they meant to each other. Wow. Yeah. Well. Now, now we have to wrap up the episode so I can go cry for a couple hours. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> a very special case. Yeah, yeah wow. Uh, I mean, a, a special case and just a tremendous job, uh, Lloyd, by you and your team. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, just can't say enough about, uh, about how you did. And, and this has just been a great episode. Lots of great uh, pointers for, uh, for practicing lawyers out there, young lawyers. Um, 
So, uh, so thank you so much. I, I just want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Lloyd Bell, uh, who's the, the founding partner of the Bell Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, you can look up Lloyd at belllawfirm.com. Lloyd, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Steve and Vaughn, and y'all have a, a wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time. And hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>